disputes, uh, Lord, would become evident to us, and that it would be for your glory, Lord, always for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, all right, we'll move over here. We're going to, I'm going to preach through uh, the first part of Romans chapter 1 today. So if you've got your, got your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans 1. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 17 today. So we've all heard the word, the gospel, right? I mean, we've, we hear it quite a bit in our, in, in, in our churches. But how precisely, if we were actually asked to define it, could we define it? Now, we know that the Greek translation of gospel is good news. It's the good news, right? But there's a lot of good news. I mean, you know, getting a raise at work, that's good news. There's all sorts of things that are good news. What, what makes the gospel good news? And I think in order to truly understand why the good news is so good, we have to understand why the bad news is so bad. And Romans is a book that will illustrate that for us very, very well. Um, when we distribute these little New Testament Psalms and Proverbs on college campuses, we, we ask the students as they walk by, would you like a Psalm, New Testament, or Proverb? And the response, and I use this too, I understand it's a cultural response, is I'm good. I'm good. You know, and, I, and I say it too. We, we know what it means. It's no thank you, but it's kind of a telling response. I'm good. I'm good. Well, are we really in good shape? Um, the book of Romans is an epistle written by Paul that's unlike most of the other letters that Paul wrote were addressed to churches uh, to address specific issues, something going on in the church. But Romans is just a general epistle, not written to a specific location, but it outlines the entire rest of God's word. I've heard uh, the book of Romans described as the commentary on the rest of the Bible. And I think that's a pretty accurate uh, description of it. It's, it's historically been a very powerful book. There's a man that most may be familiar with, um, St. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, in the 4th century, uh, he was crucial in establishing the doctrine of grace and works. Uh, he fought against a heresy at the time known as Pelagianism, um, which is a heresy that, you know, as, as God's word said, there's nothing new under the sun. Pelagianism is still alive and well. Um, but he fought especially hard against, against this in the, uh, in the 4th and 5th century. Now, Augustine... If you know much about him, some of the books that he wrote, The Confessions, is an amazing book. There's one, uh, The City of God, uh, written by Augustine, that was written right about the time that Rome was falling. His contemporary, Jerome, was there with him. And uh, a lot of people put their trust, rather than in God, they put their trust in the state, in Rome. And, I mean, Rome was too big to fall. And when it did, this that book, The City of God, now this was written by Augustine, is is a incredible book on, on some of the, you know, how, how God's sovereignty actually works. So this is, this is what Augustine brought us. But Augustine, uh, in his early life, was he kind of liked sin. He really liked, he was very promiscuous. He loved it. This is what he, he said, is he boasted of sins he had not had the opportunity to commit, rather than seem to have fallen behind his peers. So he really loved the world. He loved to live... Uh, 
in the, in the flesh. He was born to a Christian mother and a pagan father, and his mother prayed for his salvation. Now, Augustine was deeply stirred by Paul's epistles, loved Paul's epistles, but he also looked into Plate, uh, Platonism, all sorts of different uh, worldviews, I guess you would say. And then one day, he, he had uh, kind of hit the end, and he was sat down, and he tried to open up the Bible. And we've, we've probably all been there where you open up God's Word, and it's just it's not coming off the page like it does sometimes. And that's what happened to Augustine. So he began to weep, threw himself behind a fig tree, and he, and he cried, How long, O Lord? And his heart answered, Why not now? And then it said that a child's voice came to him clearly, repeating over and over, take it and read it, take it and read it, take it and read it. And Augustine opened up uh, to the book of Romans and read Romans 13, 13 and 14, and it says, Let us behave decently, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So, um, with that, Augustine became a, a Christian, and God used him to bring some incredible... He's, he's actually viewed as probably one of the chief uh, establishment of, the, of Orthodox Christian doctrine today. So, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So we note right off the bat here that in Paul's introduction, he says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. Now, what he is claiming there is that he is a capital A apostle, which is something that we need to understand that the apostle, one of the criteria for being an apostle was that you had to be an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus. Um, we are familiar with Paul, with his Damascus Road experience. Paul was Saul and was a huge persecutor of the church. But then on, his, on the way to persecute the church um, in, on the Damascus Road, uh, the Lord knocked him off his horse and took that same tenacious personality and turned it around for the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, Paul himself says, he says, Then he, referring to Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons it's really important that we understand capital A Apostle is because there was certain criteria that you had to be an eyewitness of the risen Lord Christ. Um, but that also, the, the canon of our New Testament scripture was established by the capital A Apostles. They either had to endorse or have written those books. They ceased to exist with John um, about the end of the first century. So... You know, you'll hear all the time these, there's things that will come up, they call the, the Jesus Seminar comes in. You know, you've got these old Gospels that are found, the Gospel of Thomas, all these, these new books that, you know, somehow we've missed um, that come in, uh, Gospel of Barnabas, the Apocalypse of Peter, there's all these new books that are, most of them are, are you know, third, fourth century Gnostic writings that come in, um, 
And the reason we can dismiss them, I mean, in our, in our context, I mean, they're really old writings. I mean, these are third century. These are several hundred years old. Obviously, they were closer than us. Why would we not trust them? Well, they were not endorsed by an apostle. They were, they were not part of the original canon of Scripture. So, um, And then in verse 2, we see he says that he is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, the good news. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So God's plan of salvation, his good news, his gospel, was not plan B when Israel screwed up plan A. Um, it was always plan A. Christ was always plan A, and that's what Paul is appointed to do. The uh, book of Romans actually contains over 60 Old Testament uh, scripture quotes. So continuing on in verse 3, it says, Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, Paul, after he introduces himself and gives his credentials of being an apostle, wastes no time just jumping right into the deep end of the pool, which was, I think, pretty, uh, kind of went with his personality. So he says, okay, I'm an apostle. I'm here to proclaim the gospel set apart by God that he declared beforehand. And this gospel is about, and then he jumps right into the, the deep end of the pool with the Christology of, and, you know, of Christ regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God. So he jumps right in and says, oh, and by the way, Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. Um, he wastes no time just jumping right into the deep end. I, I remember I took a, a little class one time on hermeneutics of, of interpretation going through the Bible, and the professor said, Paul, he goes, you know, he goes, I, when I read through Paul, he goes, I'm not sure we would have got along too good. Because, you know, the, the professor said, he goes, you know, I'd like to take a break. I'd like to go fishing, go hunting, you know, enjoy some downtime. He says, I'm not sure Paul actually had the ability to do that. He was just such an intense personality. I mean, and we, we can see that in, in his personality prior to his salvation. Um, he, was, he was intense persecuting the church, and then once he became a Christian, he was intense uh, standing up for the truth of God's word. So you know, that's one of the things that God, God does. We're created with this certain demeanor, certain personalities, um, and God doesn't change those. God just uses those like he did with Paul. So uh, continuing on here, verse 8, it says, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayer at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So, we get to see Paul's passion, right, and his tenacity, and how he would stand up. Uh, and we see this in other portions of the Bible where, where Paul is not ashamed to stand up for truth, but he stands up for truth in love as well. You see here the, the softer side of Paul, the loving side of Paul, because he's a new creation in Christ Jesus. It says, I long to see you, in verse 11, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. He says, in verse 12, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That is um, one of the purposes of, that's what God created us for. He created us for community so that we could be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Um, you know, as we, as we get together and we see we see God at work in other lives and God as he speaks to us through our brothers and sisters, um, as we were talking about right before the service, actually. So, Continuing on in verses 16 and 17, we'll look a little bit more detail of these two because these, the, these are really the two verses that, are, that summarize the rest of the book of Romans right here. Paul says in 16 uh, and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. These, these verses right here summarize the rest of the book of Romans pretty much. They're once we see why he's not ashamed of the gospel and why he has this boldness, I think we can have that same boldness. Um, we talked a little bit about Augustine and how it was the book of Romans that, that brought him to a saving knowledge of, of Christ's work. There's another great theologian that I wanted to talk a little bit about who also came to a saving knowledge uh, through these two verses right here, verses 16 and 17. And... Um, that is Martin Luther, the, the great reformer Martin Luther. Uh, it was these very verses that he read that actually helped to ignite the Protestant Reformation that brought all of the Protestant denominations out of, out of Roman Catholicism. So Martin Luther, uh, prior to the Reformation, was actually uh, a Roman Catholic professor at the University of Wittenberg. And it's interesting, Martin Luther had a similar personality to Paul's. He was very intense. Um, I remember hearing a story one time, one of his professors, Martin Luther just dug into God's words so deeply that he, and he would ask questions about things. Just ask and ask and ask. He was just so intense about God's word. Um, so this is the words that he taught. Now, well, I'll read this. This is, what, this is what Martin Luther said. He said, I had already for years read and taught the Holy Scriptures, both privately and publicly. I knew most of the Scriptures by heart, 
and furthermore had eaten the first fruits of knowledge of and faith in Christ, namely that we are justified not by works but by faith in Christ. So, you know, we a lot of times we have a misunderstanding. It wasn't as if in the prior to the Reformation that the Roman Catholic Church didn't have the Book of Romans. It wasn't like they just discovered the Book of Romans and read it. They read the Book of Romans. Martin Luther knew the Book of Romans by heart, but uh, as we'll see, it just there was a gnawing that was going on with him. So this was the primary, this is the prevalent teaching in, in Martin Luther's day. The, pre, the, the prevailing teaching of the church was that grace, the grace of God was an infused grace. So it's, a, it's grace that's put in the sinner so that he might become righteous. So the Christian life and the faith was heavily focused upon obediences and behavior. It was a gradual healing process um, in which the sinner starts to become righteous as God creates a new will in man, and he begins, so we begin to fulfill the law. So they held that, the Christ, and, that Christ and the grace of God made salvation a possibility for the believer, but never a certainty. So because it was an infused grace that was given to you to work, to please God, they viewed salvation as always a possibility but never a certainty. So at the final judgment, they, they held that God would decide if the Christian who had been infused by God's grace had done justice to that gift of grace. And that was, that was how salvation was achieved. So, you know, it's uh, some of the stuff, if you don't dig into it, it's like, oh, infused grace. You know, sancti- there's, there, and there is sanctification that occurs. But um, really what this boils down to is salvation by works. Um, it sounds strikingly similar to what we'll hear today. And, and I myself once claimed at one time, you know, this is, it says, you know, I think, I think God's fair. I think, you know, he'll look at bad things. He'll look at good things. Um, you know, as long as, as long as I'm a good person and the good outweighs the bad, then I'll be fine. You know, it's, it's mostly a matter of the heart anyways, you know, that, that matters. And God knows my heart, right? That's what we, that's what we hear. And that's how, uh, that's what the world says gets us into heaven. So Luther struggled with these two verses here, with his, with his workspace righteousness that he was, that he was taught. And this is, this is what he said about this on, uh, verse 17, about the righteousness of God. Luther says, Nevertheless, in spite of the passion of my heart, I was hindered by the unique word in the first chapter of Romans. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. I hated the word righteousness of God because in accordance with the usage and custom of the doctors, I had been taught to understand it philosophically as meaning, as they put it, the formal or active righteous according to which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unjust. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Day and night, I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, 
the righteous shall live by faith. So note that it says for years, not days, not months. Luther struggled with this for years. And what we just read right there, Luther knew that he was not, through his own works, right before God. He, he understood that he was a sinner fallen short of God's glory. Um, but after, you know, several years, he finally actually understood this term, the righteousness of God. And this is what he writes. He says, then finally, God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether. These are Luther's words in the 1500s, that he had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases, such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God, Just as intensely as I had now hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. So Martin Luther understood his human condition. And in spite of everything that he had been taught in his, his, I mean, he he was a prominent Roman Catholic professor. He was teaching people how this was supposed to work um you know is isn't it interesting how a lot of times we focus on the attributes of god that are pleasant to us you know we have the and and these are these are attributes of god and they are the love of god the grace of god the mercy of god um the kindness of god but he has other bad attributes attributes as well he he is a perfect god he is a just god his perfection, his justice, his wrath. Those aren't attributes that we like to think about, but those are attributes of our God. Um, You know, is it perhaps that Martin Luther didn't like to think about these things because in his, he knew that he was trying to earn God's favor. He, He realized he could never earn God's favor. He could never do enough to be made righteous in God's sight. And he, and he grasped that. So, it's kind of a natural way of thinking of our humanity, I think, to not want to look at these things because we're taught there is no free lunch, right? We, if, if you want something, you've got to work for it. You've got to earn it. Um, but God's grace is nothing we can work for. We can't earn his favor. It's only through the shed blood of Christ. Um, you know, a verse-by-verse verse study as we go through, those are, those are really good things to look at, Right? But all of these New Testament epistles, especially the, the Pauline epistles, these, they're letters. He sat down and he wrote those as letters. So if a friend sends you a letter, you don't take and like analyze the first paragraph and study through it and say, and, and this is my tendency too, so I'm you know, preaching to myself, is you, know, you look through and you say, ooh, I like the, what does that word? And you go look up the Greek in that word, right? And that's, that's good things to do, but first... 
when you get that letter, you read the letter. And then you go back and you can see the whole context that was written of that letter. Um, I would challenge everybody, and it's, it's, a tough, it's tough to do, to sit down, 16 chapters in Romans, sit down, out loud, read the 16 chapters of Romans in one sitting, just read through, try to not hang up on the little words and stuff, just to get the grasp of it. Because the book of Romans, the first three chapters are tough because they tell us the bad news that makes the good news so good. Um, so the, uh, every, the, the, the term, one of the terms Paul uses in all of his epistles, it says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace from God our Father. That grace and that peace that we have is in the understanding that it is purely a gift from him that we have that. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 and 24, it says, Jews demand signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles because they don't understand it. The world does not understand God's word, God's truth, God's love. Um, and that's why nobody likes to talk about the justice of God, the wrath of God. Those are attributes that God has because he's perfect, holy, and righteous. Um, there's a familiar term. There's bracelets. Every, you know, everyone, everybody wears them. It's the, the WWJD, right? What would Jesus do, bracelets? And that's a great question to ask. But the first question that we have to make peace with and understand is not what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do. At a single point in history, on the cross of Calvary, what did Jesus do? He came and took that wrath that God is, has to pour out because he's just. God is a just God. He would not, he would not be a God worth serving if, he, if the wrath of God was not true on the sinfulness of the world because he's perfect, he's holy. Um, but what did Jesus do? He took that wrath and covered it so we are no longer under wrath if we accepted Christ as our Savior. So let's pray. Lord God, we just uh, we thank you for your, your love, Lord, your, your care for us, Lord, that, uh, Lord, you don't need us. Uh, but you love us and decided to make a way for us to be with you forever, Lord, uh, rather than have to bear the, the wrath that we are justly and rightfully due, Lord. Um, God, we just uh, ask that your, the, your attributes, Lord, would, would indwell in our minds and we would just contemplate on those, Lord, like... Mary, when uh, the angel appeared to her, it says she pondered these things. Lord, help us to just ponder your word, to ponder your characteristics, your attributes, that your, your glory would be made evident to us, Lord. We just thank you that we are able to get together, Lord, as brothers and sisters, worship you, Lord, um, that we may be, as Paul says here, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, God. We just ask a blessing on this church, I do, Lord. Um, 
Lord, upon Jared, uh, that you just would be with him, Lord. Uh, we just, I thank you for all that you do, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Ha, 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 ha.